Well, today is our final installment of our Essentials sermon series that we've been on. I'm a little sad to see it go, but at the same time, I'm excited always to be looking forward to what God has next for us. This series is culminating today with, you probably guessed, the subject of love. So the titles of today's message is, of course, Essential Love. These messages have been building one upon another so as to take us on a a sort of a progressive journey through a look at some of the core principles about how to follow God. So we talked about essential commitment and essential obedience and essential forgiveness and essential giving and essential worship, and now we're ending on essential love. Each one of these topics really deserves to be a sermon series in and of itself, and love is no exception to that, but we're really just looking at an overview right now of each of these topics, okay? And these are basic essential elements to living a life of faith and devotion to God. Just like there are lots of things in our lives that are essentials, but that we don't necessarily think about a lot or, or don't provoke deep thought all the time, but they're essential needs in our lives. We need water. We need food. We need shelter, right? These are basic essential items that we don't always think about. One of those items that I probably don't give nearly enough thought to in my own life are my keys. Do you know what I mean? Like your car keys, your house keys? Probably twice a month, I lock myself outside of my house. <clears throat> it's a true story. As a matter of fact, it's gotten so bad lately that my mother, who just trying to take care of me, took one of my house keys, went to the store, made copies, brought them to me on a ring, and said, if you'll just hide these outside, when you lock yourself out of the house, you can get back in. And I want to tell you, Mom, as soon as I find those keys, I'm going to do that. <laughs> story of my life. There was like three times in a week recently when my dad had to drive me to work because I locked myself out. The thing is, we have a front porch on our house and a back porch. If you lock yourself out on the back porch, it's like 12 or 15 feet off the ground, so you're stuck. My parents live next door, but it's not like next door in a subdivision. It's the next plot of land over. You literally walk on a path through the woods to get to their house. So if you're out on the back porch... You pretty much your only option is to scream at the top of your lungs, and if mom has the window open or if mom or dad come outside for some reason, they can hear you and come rescue us. We've learned that from experience. So the other day, Monday is my day off, and uh, my wife gets up and takes the kids to school, and then often in the afternoon I'll go pick them up. So she leaves with the kids, and I get up, and I'm the only one home. And you know, I'm wearing what I was sleeping in, which, like, my shorts, you know? I'm sorry, that's, I know too much information, but I'm just trying to give you an understanding of the situation I was in. I'm nearly naked. And I walked outside on the front porch, thankfully, for some uh, reason, I can't remember why, and I closed the door behind me, and you guessed it, I was locked out. No car keys, no cell phone, no house keys. So I'm standing on my front porch, basically, without anything on, and I thought, well, I've got, I've got a couple choices. I can walk through the woods down the trail, naked, essentially, to my parents' house and ask them to let me in, which would be really embarrassing. Or I can just hang out here and wait for my wife to get back because she's going to be back within an hour from dropping off the kids. And that sounded good to me. So I thought, I'm not going to say anything to anybody. I'm just going to hang out here until she gets home. And no sooner had I had that thought that I looked up. We live in the middle of nowhere. Nobody comes to our house, particularly in the middle of the week. Except that day, the UPS man was driving down the driveway. 
So I'm looking at him as he's looking at me as he's coming down the driveway, and I'm thinking, I could take off running right now <laughs> and just hide behind a tree, but that would be pretty creepy. So I'm going to man up and just stand here and take it like a man. So there I am in all my glory. And the UPS guy gets out of the truck and he's kind of looking at me. He's, you know, 30 feet away and he's like, how's it going? <laughs> it's going good. How are you? Doing fine. So he goes back and, of course, I've ordered a bunch of theological Bible books. So he's unloading those out of the truck and he comes up to the porch and he's standing there with these. And I'm standing there like, you know. And he goes, uh, you, want me to, you want me to hand you these or you want me to just put them over here on the porch? I said, you can, you can just stick them over there. <laughs> so he sets the books down and, and I have to sign the little, you know, electronic pad thing. And he says, have a great day. And I said, yeah, it's shaping up to be one. <laughs> and he left. And that was it. You know, sometimes it's important to focus on the essentials before we think about some of the more advanced things like getting in your car and driving down the road. It's the same thing in our walk with the Lord. We should always pay attention to the essential elements of our relationship and our walk with Him. And that's what this series has been about. The video we just watched, I think, is helpful in seeing at a high level this common thread of God's love throughout the Bible. But the subject of love really deserves an in-depth treatment if we're to attempt to truly understand such a profound topic. There's a book I talk about often called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God by D.A. Carson. He's one of my favorite authors, and the book does an excellent job of explaining the depth of the subject of God's love and the relationship between the different attributes of his love, like sovereignty, holiness, wrath, judgment, things like providence and grace. That's all part of his love. And I'll warn you that the book is not for the faint of heart. The subject of love in Scripture is really multifaceted, and it's complex. And the book will challenge your thinking a bit if you decide to read it, but you're smart people. And I think that exploring that subject of God's love, in my opinion, is a worthy pursuit. <clears throat> I don't agree with all of Carson's theology, I'll tell you that. Uh, there are elements of his teaching that I just don't agree with, but it's not heretical in my opinion in any way. These are finer points of doctrine. Uh, so I don't throw the whole in book out because of that. And the specific teaching that he gives about God's love, which is really the thrust of the book, is, is tremendous. Okay, So the purpose of these sermons then has been to simply establish some basic understanding about the core elements of Christian living and hopefully create some common ground and common understanding within this congregation so that as we continue to move forward together as a community of faith, we're doing so on common ground and ultimately growing together in the Lord. At least that's been the goal. So over the months and years, I'm sure we'll come back around to these subjects and others and give them uh, more of the time and teaching that they require for deeper understanding. But from here, from this series, we'll be transitioning into a new sermon series that will certainly address individual needs and individual issues, but will also focus on how we can begin to function even more effectively as a church, as a, as a body, a family, a community of believers. And that starts next week, okay? But today we're going to talk about essential love. The reason we love is because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. Christian love is a gift from God, and it's demonstrated ultimately on the cross. Romans 5.8 says, God showed His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And then 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, or the, the appeasement for our sins. Okay? Christian love is a gift from God. He always initiates. So just as our worship, we talked about last week, is a response to the revelation of who God is, our love is a response to his love for us. So today I want to talk about what we do with that. What are we to do with this love? What, what part do we play? Okay, so first or number one, if you're keeping an outline, we are to love God. Love God, that seems obvious enough. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 22, and we'll look at verses 34 through 40. To set the scene here, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are questioning Jesus. And they're doing their level best to back Jesus into a corner. And earlier in verse 15, it says, entangle him in his words, okay? So these pious, religious, arrogant church leaders are setting a trap for Jesus because they want to discredit him publicly and humiliate him, right? And I remember, I was a couple of years ago, I'm sure you all probably remember it well because you were here. I was in Alaska. But I remember watching on the news a debate over same-sex marriage in North Carolina, something to do with the Constitution, and it was a big thing on television. It was all over social media. It was, it was a, a big thing. And I remember watching one night this news anchor in North Carolina, a local news anchor, interviewing Dr. Mark Harris. Um, he's a pastor of a First Baptist Church in some community there. And he's a, a very articulate, well-known scholarly pastor. And this was a fairly hostile interview. I mean, the news anchor clearly fell on one side of the issue, or he was playing on that side of the issue. And he was quoting a lot of scripture. It was interesting. And he was asking a lot of leading questions to this pastor, but he was clearly trying to entrap the guy, the pastor, in his words. And it was interesting to watch this unfold. And all the pastor was doing was he would simply quote scripture correctly in context back to the guy interviewing him. And it was almost comical to me watching this news guy trying to debate with a pastor about biblical theology. And this wasn't your run-of-the-mill pastor, probably. This guy's a true Bible scholar. I'm not going to debate weather with a meteorologist. Do you know what I mean? And watching a local anchorman debate theology with a Bible scholar was almost painful. It's like that old saying, don't take a knife to a gunfight. And that's exactly what was happening when the Sadducees and Pharisees here decided to pick a fight with Jesus. You know, if you're going to have a theological debate, you may want to rethink your choice of opponents if your opponent is God. So, we'll pick it up in verse 34. This is what's happening. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. What a picture we have here of these religious leaders. They're choosing an expert in the law among them to challenge Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And they really thought they were going to trip him up with this question, but Jesus responds perfectly. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What a powerful and definitive statement by Jesus. Not only did he completely befuddle the Pharisees here, he makes an amazing statement. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. These are, of course, commandments to love. And the greatest and first is to love God. Jesus says here that loving God is the most important thing that we can do. Okay? Listen, we can't do anything meaningful in life for the cause of Christ until we get this commandment right. We can't do one thing meaningful for each other until we get this point right. We must first love God before we can accomplish anything for his kingdom. Okay, so, so how do we truly love God? A, if you're keeping an outline, how do we truly love God? Let's turn to 1 John chapter 5 and we'll read the first three verses. 1 John 5, 1 through 3, and I'm going to go ahead, it's on the screen. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Okay, we're going to get to that part in a minute. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So, loving God means keeping his commandments. Why do you think this verse mentions that his commandments are not burdensome? Because under the old covenant, without Jesus as its fulfillment, the law in and of itself was burdensome. But with Jesus, love and law are now complementary. Okay? When you love someone, particularly someone in authority over you, you generally want to please them. You want to obey. You want to serve them. Keeping God's commandments, keeping his laws, obeying his rule is a joyful prospect under the new covenant. So we no longer labor under the burden of legalism. But we labor in grace with joy because of his love for us, okay? Loving him back means keeping his commandments. That's why we spent the last several weeks talking about essential commitment and obedience and forgiveness and, and giving and worship. This is all part of loving God and keeping his commandments. John fourteen fifteen, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then in the same chapter, verses 21 through 24, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Jesus is very clear. We love him because he first loved us. And directly out of that love comes action. Obedience to the commandments of God. And I just got to tell you, there's absolutely no way we can get around this point. I can preach about grace and mercy and warm and fuzzy feelings all day long, which, by the way, are wonderful facets of God. But that will never abrogate our responsibility 
to show our love for God by being obedient to his commands. If, if we are to truly love God, we must obey his commandments. It, it isn't just how we feel about God. It's much more than that. It's, it's what we do with God, okay, in our lives. So the next step, or number two on your outline, which we've just read, is really also a part of loving God. It's loving each other, all right? Go back to 1 John 4, and we'll read 7 through 12, and then we'll skip down to verse 20. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. He's seen through us to each other. Now skip down to verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he, he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We read earlier that Jesus said, loving each other is the second greatest commandment. These two commandments are tied very closely together. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's a pretty important point. This is how people know who we are, by our love for one another. Okay, so, so A, how do I love others? How do, I, how do I do that? Verse 34. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus, are you, are you serious? We're supposed to love each other like you love us. Think about that for a minute. I was raised in a proud American tradition like most of you probably were. I'm not supposed to let people, excuse me, walk over me. I'm supposed to stand up for myself. That's what we're taught in this country. I take care of me and my own. Self-reliant, self-confident, self-made man, right? Well, how does that compare to Christ? How did Jesus love us? He was mistreated. He was abused. He was wrongly accused. He was unjustly punished. He was tortured. He was belittled. He was stripped naked, laughed at. And killed for a bunch of Christians, right? No, no. For a bunch of undeserving, no good, self-reliant, self-confident, self-made sinners. That's how he loved us. We're supposed to love each other the same way. That's a lot of sacrifice. That's giving ourselves up for one another. And don't confuse feelings with love because... There are feelings that come with love. But love isn't some kind of mushy feeling that we get in our chest or the, the pit of our stomach. Love is a decision. It's a choice. It's an act. It's a commitment. 
that's how we love someone even when the feelings aren't there. Because we've made a commitment that transcends our feelings. Listen, feelings will come later. I tell people in marriage counseling all the time, forget about your feelings for a minute. It's hard to do. Forget about feelings and think about the commitment you've made. God is more than able to bring feelings back. But you've got to stick with the commitment. That's true love. Well, pastor, how do I love someone that I don't even like? I get that one. This could be your enemy. It could be your spouse. <laughs> it could be a relative, a neighbor, or the person sitting next to you on the pew. I don't know. How do I love someone that I don't even like? You want the answer? Deny yourself. Die to yourself. This is a hard message. Take the example of Christ and lay your own life down for that person. That's how Jesus loved us. Look, I know that person, and most of us, we have someone probably that's already come to mind. I know that person doesn't act the way you want them to. They make you angry. They can be very disagreeable, cause you all kinds of frustration. You just don't like their personality. How do I deal with that? The answer is deny yourself. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. We spend so much time and energy trying to change other people when we should be focused on ourselves. So how do I love someone that I don't even like? Well, B, the second point there, only expend energy that has the potential of producing positive results. Okay? You are the only person that you can control. That's why God tells us to exercise self-control and not control. Work on self and let God work on the other person. Don't waste your time trying to change your spouse or your coworker or neighbor or relative, the guy in church that you really don't like. You can spin your wheels forever trying to make another person see things your way. But the vast majority of time, you'll be burning energy and time and passion and focus on a pursuit that will not produce any measurable positive results. And I'm not talking about witnessing, by the way, or leading them to the Lord. I'm not talking about evangelism. I'm talking about personality conflict, value conflict, priority conflict between you and those that you're already in relationship with. So instead of pushing for change in the other person, spend your energy and time and passion and focus denying yourself, dying to yourself, taking up your cross and following Christ. That is so counter to our culture. It goes so against the grain of how most of us were raised. But it's exactly what Christ has called us to do. It isn't the easy thing to do, but it's how we love each other, okay? And finally, we are to love those that are of the world. John 6, verses 27 through 36. In this passage, Jesus really ups the ante. Because it's one thing to love God. He's perfect. It's another thing to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Most of them are pretty good. But it's another thing altogether. It's entirely different to love those that hate you. Verse 27, But I say to you here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. 
And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. We, we have to get our eyes off of this life sometimes and think about the big picture. We're so caught up. I get so caught up in the cares of this world, in me, what I need, what I want, what's best for me. When God wants us to transcend those feelings and look at what he's doing, the big picture, how in the world do I love the totally unlovable? Well, you take time out of your busy schedule to go buy some toys for kids in the neighborhood whose parents can't afford to buy them anything for Christmas. You take time out of your day to help deliver food to hungry people. You buy some extra items every time you go to the grocery store and bring it to the church. You know, we're making room downstairs in our storage closet to start a year-around food pantry for needy families because we figure they probably like to eat more than just Thanksgiving and Christmas time, right? My family can't stock that on our own, but all together we can. You give extra in the offering to help support our missionary families around the world that we talked about who've given up everything to take the gospel to people in places that most of us have never heard of. How in the world do I love the unlovable? You help a few families start a church in a small town in South Carolina. A little town called Traveler's Rest. You know we have a university with a Buddhist temple right in the middle of campus, right down the street. The world is all around us. How do I love the unlovable? You take time, your time, your precious time to tell the unsaved, unbelieving friends about the Lord and you offer to bring them to church with you. How do I love the unlovable? If you will look around, I promise you'll see opportunities everywhere. They're all around us. There's a lot of homelessness in Alaska, in Fairbanks anyway, where we lived. And we pulled up to the grocery store one day and there was a guy, a homeless guy, sitting on the, on the uh, sidewalk in front of the building. And he was shouting vile uh, profanities, cursing people as they would walk by and no one was even looking at him, shouting out. And we pulled up and I said to my wife and kids, just stay in the car. And people are walking by him, just filing by and he's yelling and shouting and I walked right up to him and I said, what is it that you want? And he looked at me sort of startled and he said, I want some food. I'm hungry. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. If you will shut your mouth, stop yelling out profanities and cursing at these people, I'll go in the store and I'll buy you some groceries. Fair enough? He said, yes, sir. And that's what I did. My wife, in a very similar situation, not long after that, about a week after that, bought food for a woman outside the grocery store that was destitute. In fact, we used to do that whenever we could. 
people tell us that that's naive. I understand that people who are outside begging are often chemically dependent. That's usually true. Generally, unless the Holy Spirit tells me to, I don't hand money to people who are begging because I don't want to enable them to buy more alcohol or drugs. But drug addicts need to eat. I've watched some of those folks rip into the food I hand them the moment I hand them and start shoving it in their mouth because they're hungry. All you have to do is look around you. The world is full of undesirable, unwanted, unlovely, hurting people. We're supposed to love those people too. Okay? But, but pastor, this is one I've heard a few times. I live a good life, and I'm closing. I live a good life. I give good advice. I do good deeds. But I can't live like Jesus did. Right? For Pete's sake, he was Jesus. You can't possibly expect me to live that way. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I, I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It, it is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. If we don't have love, we don't have anything. God's love is an all-consuming ever-reaching, undeserved offering of pure and intimate relationship with the Creator of all things. It's an unstoppable power, deeper than the deepest chasm, higher than the highest heavens, and it's able to pluck us out of the vilest circumstances and give us new life because He first loved us. If we don't have love, we don't have anything. If we can't love each other, how can we possibly love a world that is lost and dying? And listen, I'm preaching to the choir. I get it. This is a wonderful church. But I want to tell you something. If you've been here more than, let's just make it official policy. If you've been here more than twice, you're a greeter. Do you hear me? When people walk in that back door that have never been here, 
you, you shake their hand, you wrap your arms around them, you ask them about themselves, you get to know them. Church, we've got to be friendly because the world is hurting and they come in with all kinds of preconceived ideas about what church is about. And I'd love to just shatter all that. This is a family. And when you walk in, you're welcome. Doesn't matter what state you're in. And you do a good job of that, by the way. It's a wonderful church. Keep it up. We need to keep on with that. Loving people, no matter where they come from, what they look like, what their circumstances, whatever sin and mess they are in, it does not matter. This is the family of God. And it is our job to embrace those that come in this place with the love of Christ, no matter what it takes, no matter how they smell, no matter what. That's what we're called to do. It all starts with loving God. But we cannot love that which we do not know. So I'm going to ask you this morning, do you know him?